Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Just one verse. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you will be with us as we meditate on the truths of this verse. We pray, Lord, that we will indeed imitate the faith of those who have spoken the word of God, those who have endured until the end, showing that they truly did and sincerely did believe in the true gospel. Teach us, Lord, to imitate their faith and to live just like them. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this one verse, we have to be reminded of where it is and where it is situated here in this letter. This one verse is situated in the area of the book of Hebrews at the place where some exhortations are there or some ethical and moral exhortations or commandments are presented. Remember, the first 12 chapters were full of the theological and warnings and encouragements to follow the true doctrine, the true gospel, theologically. Now, morally, he gives us some exhortations. In verses 1 to 6, we have read about loving the brethren, not neglecting hospitality, remembering the prisoners, keeping marriage honorable, and having our character free from the love of money, verses 5 and 6. Now, another command or exhortation to remember those who led you and imitate their faith. This is what he has for us in this verse. Now, when we think of imitating the faith of anyone, you might think about what happens normally and customarily in life. How is it or what is it that we do to imitate somebody else? Do we imitate others by following a crowd? Do we have that propensity? Do we have that inclination to follow the crowd, whatever the crowd says? Or are we of the kind that whenever somebody says anything, you always have to say no and be disagreeable? Or when you choose to follow someone or imitate someone, is it based on worldly things, on fleshly things, on pleasures, Is it based on fame? Is it based on fortune? Is it based on fun? On what basis do we imitate others? And on what basis do we follow others? Have we thought about that? If we look all around us, we see that people often do follow someone else because the one that they follow is going to, in words and in deeds, do something to help the follower get the same fame that he has or help the follower accumulate the same kind of fortune that he has. Or if the leader is one who knows how to have a good time, a lot of fun, how to party, then the followers want to be with him so that they can have that kind of fun time. So these are the reasons often that people have in following people. Even it happens this way in churches. Why is it that people go to one church above another church. It has to do with these same issues. It's because the pastors of those churches that they, that they attend, that especially are huge churches, they don't say anything to their hearers to cross them, to say something that would make them want to walk away or go away. They don't preach against sin. They don't preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. They may mention the word sin. They may mention the word repentance. They might say righteousness and holiness occasionally, but not so much that the pastor is taken seriously by his hearers so that they realize, oh, the pastor really means what he's saying, and if that's what he means, I'm not going to go to that church anymore. That's why there are huge churches, mega churches, because the pastors are not speaking the word of God, they are not good men or leaders to imitate and mimic. Actually, they are bad ones, and that's why a lot of people go there. These are the issues that are related to our verse 
Now, in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Let's now look at it word by word and phrase by phrase. He says, remember those who led you. Remember. In the scripture, when it says remember, he does not mean to remember as though just to keep a fact in your mind or something of that nature. Remember means to remember to the point of obeying, of doing something about it, being mindful of it so that you are concerned and act upon that concern. After all, that's what he's been doing in 13 verses 1 to 6. He used the word remember in verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. So when he says remember, he means to act on what you know. Don't neglect it, don't forget it, but act on what you know. In fact, notice a similarity of verse 7 to verse 17. When he says, remember those who led you, look at 17, Hebrews 13, 17. Remember to this extent, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. And even verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Notice, even in this chapter, when he says remember, remember is not casual, remember is not factual, just keep them in mind, don't ever forget their name or something like that. Remember has to do with following whatever they say, following their example, following their words, because they speak the word of God. Furthermore, he says, those who led you, or simply your leaders, as it says in verse 17, obey your leaders. Verse 24, greet all of your leaders. Now, who are these leaders that should be remembered? Who are they? In this chapter, the word leaders appears, and occasionally elsewhere in the New Testament, But the leaders that he has in mind are those who spoke the word of God to you. So in the local church, who would those leaders be? Who would those leaders be? We can learn from Ephesians chapter 4, a few of them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In this case, the leaders are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This is what he means, because these are the ones who would be speaking the word of God to the people. Deacons are not mentioned here, because the role of the deacon is not on the word of God, but on the service of the people of the church. The deacon is not mentioned because he is not the one who would handle the word of God, meaning in an official teaching and preaching capacity, he would not be the one to do it. But these other ministers of God, the apostles, the prophets, and then the evangelists and the pastors. See also Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 And verse 1, in the local church, for all of us, who is it that we have as leaders? Now that we don't have any more apostles and we don't have any more prophets, who is it that will be in the local church? Philippians 1.1 mentions them. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. The overseers and deacons. He's saying uh, or conveying greetings to everyone and sending this letter to everyone, but he says including the overseers and deacons. Now we might say these are leaders. They are leaders, but the leaders that Hebrews 13.7 has in mind are those who speak the word of God, and in this verse it would be the overseers. That's not a word we use very much. We use the word pastor or elder more than overseer, but pastor, elder, overseer all have to do with the same office, the same position of leadership in the local church. 
And so in this way, it is the overseer, elder, or pastor in the church that we have now in the modern church from the New Testament that should be teaching and preaching the Word of God to the people. And it is the Word of God, for it says in Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, we'll see how in Titus 1, verse 5, what he says. Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus is to appoint elders in every city where there are churches. He's supposed to affine them and appoint these elders. Verse 6, what kind of man? If any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Notice there in verse 7, the elders of verse 5 are the same as overseers and stewards, managers, God's managers or stewards of verse 7. And these men are not to be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So the elders or overseers, stewards of the local church, they are to have this godly character of verses 6 to 8, and then their basic and main function is verse 9. They are to hold fast, cling on to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The apostolic teaching is the same as the faithful word. And if he holds on to this, clings on to this, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This pastor is supposed to exhort in sound doctrine, show the people, teach the people what is sound or healthy, good, wholesome doctrine or teaching of the Bible, and then refute the people who contradict that teaching be able to refute them as well. These are the leaders of Hebrews 13.7. These are the leaders. This is showing the importance of this role in the local church, that these are the leaders that ought to be remembered. Now also in Hebrews, he tells us, he qualifies the main role or the most significant role or function or duty of the leaders who spoke the word of God to you, who spoke the word of God to you. This is, as we saw in Titus 1, and we see here in Hebrews 13, 7, the main important duty of the leader to speak the word of God to the people. This is his duty. This is his duty. Now let's see why this is his duty. Why is it so important that he should speak the word of God to the people? Why? Why? The first example is Titus, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. 118. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Now, what does he say in 18? The word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, the gospel of Christ, which is focused on the cross of Christ, when that is preached, it is going to be foolishness to those who perish, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that means that if we are, we are being saved, we need to hear this word of the cross because we're not going to be saved without it. If we don't hear the word of the cross, then there is no salvation. That's how important it is to preach the word of God to the people 
because otherwise there is no salvation. And in fact, God is going to destroy and neutralize and and get rid of completely the wisdom of the wise and the clever people of the world. Because they have human wisdom, they have satanic wisdom, they don't have God's wisdom, and God is going to destroy it and set it all aside. Which means it's either or proposition. Either we have the word of the cross, or we have the word of Satan, or the word of men. But it's not the same. We cannot say you can have some word of the cross and some word of men. No, it's the word of the cross that is going to have the power of God to save us. Further, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. 2, 1. How important was it to the Apostle Paul? 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He reminds the Corinthians, when he came, he did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. When the the Apostle Paul preached the word of the cross, the word of God to them, the gospel to them, he did not come as an eloquent and erudite man, somebody who had a wonderful way of presentation, wonderful vocabulary, wonderful stories and wonderful adages, wonderful anecdotes to present to the people. He was not a superior storyteller in order to get the people to keep listening to him and pay attention to him and to say, oh, wow, ooh, and ah, look, I could listen to him speak for one or two or three hours. He knows how to keep his audience attention. No, he says, I didn't come like that with superiority of speech or of wisdom. I didn't come with human wisdom and present this human wisdom to you and dazzle you with the things I know, humanly speaking. I did not come like that. When I was proclaiming to you the testimony of God, when I proclaim the testimony of God, I have to be faithful to the testimony of God. It's God who is testifying or witnessing about what is true, and I have to be faithful to that. And verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He wanted them to understand nothing else except Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Nothing else was important to him. Notice there, Jesus Christ, because John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only way of salvation is in Christ, so why should anybody from the pulpit or when evangelizing say anything else? Why why should he be preaching and teaching anything else? And it's Christ crucified. Why was Christ crucified? He was crucified because of sin. He was crucified because he bore the wrath of God, the punishment of sin in his own person. So if you preach Jesus Christ and not Muhammad, and not Jesus and Muhammad, if you preach Jesus Christ and not Jesus Christ plus Krishna, or if you preach Jesus Christ and not Jesus Christ plus Buddha or anybody else, if you preach only Jesus Christ, then there's only one way of salvation. And people don't want to hear that. And if you preach that Jesus Christ was crucified, then you will have what? An acknowledgement that God does indeed punish sinners. He punishes sinners, and we need to have our own sins forgiven by repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, in order to be forgiven of our sins. This is the only way, right? If we preach Jesus Christ crucified, we have to say these things. The holy and righteous God sent His beloved Son, His pure, unblemished, beloved Son, to die on the cross. And if we believe in His death and resurrection for us, 
we shall be saved, which means we have to turn away from sin and evil and cling to Christ and Christ alone. Now, do we hear about this these days? This is the word of God that is the respected, honorable word of God. That's why he said in Hebrews 13, 7, that this is the kind of leader or preacher or pastor that you need to follow. The one who preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not the one who says Jesus here or there, who mentions sin maybe once in the sermon, or who might mention hell once a year in his sermon, but not really preach the truth. What are sermons often filled with today? Sermons are often filled with anecdotes and stories about the pastor's personal life. What he did the previous week. What his children did that week. Where he went with his wife. What, what, he, where, what places he visited. What his, what his activities are. His hobbies are. Sports. Whatever he likes to, to pursue. These are the kinds of things. And then, if he's a joker, he can know when to crack the joke in the sermon, at what points in the sermon, to make sure that he has the people rolling and, and, and happy throughout the sermon and keeping their attention. Oh, he's a good joker. That's a good place to go to church. Because then it's lighthearted. It's fun. It has nothing to do with godliness and repentance for forgiveness of sins. And if he's a pastor and he says that, then I like that pastor because that pastor doesn't expect me to turn away from my sins. This is what happens. But that's not what Paul preached. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the kind of leader that we have to remember. Further, verses 3 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Why? When Paul had the word of God in his hands, he was with the people, the Corinthians, in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Not that he feared the Corinthians. Not that he feared his enemies among the Corinthians. But he feared God. Because he knew that whatever he said must be accurately said. Whatever he said must be truthfully said. Whatever he said, whatever God told him to say, whatever message he has from the word must be presented to the people. The people should hear that truth of God. They could not and should not hear anything else. Nothing about Paul, nothing about other things, nothing about nature, nothing like that, nothing about science and psychology, nothing about philosophy and nutrition, nothing like that. That's not what's in the Bible. The Bible is about the gospel to save souls that will live eternally either in heaven or in hell. So in that way, he was before God in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Those who are preaching in the pulpit, who are very lighthearted, who are presenting a clown show in the pulpit, they don't think of their duty before God in this way. There is no way that a preacher could be a clown in the pulpit in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. There's no way that he has that before God. And if he does not have that before God, he should be thrown out of the pulpit. He should be defrocked from his position in ministry. He should go do something else. Go be a stand-up comedian. Go be a psychologist. Go do something else. Actually, a psychologist is, is worthless also and stand-up comedians. What are they going to do unless they have the gospel in whatever they say? What are they really going to do for the people? Verses 4 and 5, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Well, where is this power of God resting? Where is the power of God Situated, The power of God is situated in the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 It is the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
So he preached the power of God so that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to produce a child of God. He did not want their faith to rest on the wisdom of men. The wisdom of men is useless and worthless. It's futile and it leads to hell, but not the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God leads to eternal life. The Apostle Paul, he handled the word of God like this. He spoke the word of God like this. Further, Romans 10, 17. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Why is it necessary to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, the word of Christ? Because otherwise you will not produce true faith in people if you don't preach that true gospel. Because it says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It's not going to come from a lesson on philosophy, a lesson on sports, a lesson on psychology, or anything else. It's not going to come that way. It will only come by the word of Christ. True faith will come if they are hearing the word of Christ. Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. After listening to the message of truth, and what is this message of truth? The gospel of your salvation, having also believed, not just listened and heard it, but believe it. You are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If we don't preach the gospel of salvation, the message of truth, then there is no being sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It won't happen. We need this in order to be saved. 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. The apostle explains what he preached to the people and what resulted. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Thessalonians correctly understood and correctly connected the dots that what Paul was preaching was not the word of men. He was preaching the word of God from the Bible. He was preaching the Bible to them. And when they understood this, and they understood it's actually the word of God, it performed its work in them because they believed it to be the word of God. When they believed it to be the word of God, then it worked in them. Now, this is Paul saying this about himself, that he commends the Thessalonians for believing that it was the word of God that he preached there in 1 Thessalonians 2. In Acts 17, Luke tells us this very thing, that Paul did this in Thessalonica. In Acts 17, verse 2, in Thessalonica, it says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. It was customary for Paul to reason like this from the scriptures to convince the people that Jesus was the Christ. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're still we're still studying the importance of this word, the important what it produces. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. 314. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. From childhood, verses 14 and 15, Timothy learned from his mother and grandmother that wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He learned this from the sacred writings, not from the wisdom of his mother or grandmother, but from the sacred writings which they taught him, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. They taught him faith in Christ Jesus. They also preached to him in the family, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's how he was saved from childhood. Not only is the Bible for our salvation, verses 16 and 17, it's also for our holiness or our sanctification, our growth to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us. Verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, so we should teach it. For reproof, when somebody needs to be confronted in what he has done, then it needs to be used to reprove the person, to correct the person, and also to train the person in righteousness. This is what the Scripture's function is. So it's teaching us that everything the man of God needs, and in this case, the man of God is specifically Timothy, and what is Timothy? Timothy is a pastor. He's an elder, an overseer in Ephesus. And he says that the man of God, God has given this word to us, the word of God to us, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Everything we need for our adequacy or sufficiency to equip us to do the will of God in a good way is right here in the Bible. That's what he's teaching. That's why the word of God is so important. Now, now the, the necessity of teaching the Word of God correctly. Remember those who led you who spoke the Word of God to you. Now, speaking the Word of God needs to be done correctly or accurately. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, Timothy, he has as his duty right here at the outset of this first letter, his purpose in remaining at Ephesus is to teach, to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Not to teach strange doctrines. Certain men. The certain men are the false teachers. The certain men are the false brethren. The certain men are those who try to take away the sheep from the church. That's the certain men. And they do so with their false doctrines, but he's supposed to refute them. He's supposed to show the people, the, pe the, the false teachers themselves, and the people who are seeing and witnessing all of this, what the truth is. And what sh should his goal be? Verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The false teachers, the certain men, do not have love as their goal. They might say so, but it's not true. Not true biblically, it's not true. The true teacher, Timothy, and others like him, have love as their true goal. From a pure heart, not an impure heart, because false teachers have ill motives, they have ulterior motives for what, the, what they do and what they're doing to teach the people. Impure heart. The true teacher also has a good conscience because his conscience has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The false teachers are unredeemed. They still have an evil conscience and dead works. 
an evil conscience and dead works. The true teacher has a sincere faith, and he's trying to show the people what it means to have a sincere faith. But the false teachers, the certain men, they have an insincere faith. They say they believe, but they don't really believe. They have the very opposite. They have the opposite of these things. So Timothy is supposed to be conscientious, very careful about what he teaches and the reasons for him teaching these things to the people. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. 416. We have a summary of this whole letter right here. 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, which means his own life, his own holiness, he has to pay close attention to what he thinks, what he believes, how he lives, and also his teaching. So his life and his doctrine, his teaching, have to be under close scrutiny by himself. Timothy should be introspective, look at his own teaching and his own life, and see if it matches the word of God. And why? Because if he does this, he will ensure his own salvation and the salvation of the people who hear him. That's how important it is. So if he has doctrine or life conduct that's wrong, that's false, that's heretical, then it will jeopardize his own salvation. And if he teaches others to do the same, it's going to jeopardize, endanger the salvation of other people. So he has to be extremely careful about what he says and what he does. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Here too, he's supposed to be diligent, pay close attention to himself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Nothing in the Bible should cause us shame. Nothing in the Bible should cause the pastor to be so afraid or so timid that he won't tell the people the truth. He has to tell the people the truth and he has to live accordingly. And as he tells them the truth, he should handle accurately the word of truth. Handle it accurately. Be very careful about what he says is in the Bible, what he says we should believe, what he says about how we should live. James 3, verse 1. James 3, verse 1. Let many of you, my brethren, not become teachers, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Many people should not seek to be teachers because there is a stricter judgment for those who teach the Bible. Therefore, all the more, they have to be very, very careful about how they live and what they teach. Now, what about esteeming them? What about esteeming them? Those who preach and teach the word of God. Let's see 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The elders or the pastors who rule well, they are to be considered worthy of double honor. If they are ruling well, then double honor to them, and where and how can you know who should receive this? Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 
There we have the central, fundamental role of the pastor or elder, preaching and teaching. When they work hard at preaching and teaching, to make sure, to be very careful and conscientious that you understand the Bible, to understand the gospel in the Bible, they are the ones who are considered to be considered worthy of double honor. And, verse 18, how will that show that you are giving them double honor? That you are not muzzling the ox while he is threshing, and you are giving wages to the laborer. He's saying, if you really are honoring him, it will show by you compensating him. If you don't compensate him, it shows you really don't honor him. Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. Galatians 6 verse 6. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In verse 6, this is the way to esteem The one who is taught is to share all good things with him who teaches. Not deceive ourselves. Don't mock God. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And don't grow weary in doing good. If you are doing good by sharing all good things with him who teaches, then you are honoring him and doing right or doing good. And then 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5. 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. He appeals to them as brothers, and he says that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Those who diligently labor, like 1 Thessalonians 5, appreciate them. They have charge over you. They have a responsibility over you, as we read in Hebrews 13, 17 to 19. They have charge and responsibility over you in the Lord, And they give you instruction. They give you instruction. They are the ones teaching the word of God to you, who speak the word of God to you. That you esteem them very highly in love. Very highly in love because of their work. What work? The responsibility of accurately instructing the people. They should be esteemed very highly. And then he says, live in peace with one another. That's the same as Hebrews 13, 17 to 19, which said, let them do this with joy and not with grief. It does not help, it does not help the church when the people of the church are doing things to create discord, discontentment, and conflict in the church. He says, live in peace with one another. If you live in peace with one another and you don't instigate conflict, instigate rebellion, which is going to be directed toward the teacher of the church, the pastor of the church, who is doing his best to diligently labor among you to work like this, live in peace. If we do the opposite, we are creating conflict and discord and putting a burden on the teacher. And finally, finally, what is the attitude we should have to those who speak the Word of God or, no, rather, the Word of God itself? The attitude of 
our hearts toward the Word of God itself. What should that be? And to see several examples of this, let's first go to Job. Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23. The attitude that we should have toward the Word of God. The attitude that we should have toward the Word of God. Job 23 verse 12. Job declares, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. His attitude was that he did not depart from God's commands, and also he treasured the words of God more than his necessary food. More than his necessary food. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 10. Psalm 19, 10. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Not only food, but also valuable possessions. The word of God, he says, is more desirable than gold, fine gold, and sweeter than honey, he says. That was his attitude toward the Bible. Psalm 119, 119, verse 72. Psalm 119, 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The laws of God, the words of God, are better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is that true? Is that true of us? This is the attitude of the faithful, of the believer. 119, 119.127 Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Yes, people love, they love their possessions. They say, I love this, I love that, all day long about different things they have, different things they own, different foods they eat. But what about the commandments of God? Are they treasured? Are they loved above gold? Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 15, Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16, 15, 16, Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart for I have been called by your name, O Lord of hosts, because he is a child of God. Because he has the adopted name of God in his life, because he is now a son of the Father, he says, the words of God were found and he ate them. He says that God's words are a joy and delight of my heart. Joy and delight of my heart. He doesn't begrudgingly, he doesn't, Um, consider the word of God a burden to him, he delights in it. He eats them up like they were sweet food. Jesus, did not Jesus say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work? John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The word of God was what Jesus had in front of him, because the will of God is known by the word of God. So he had this word of God known, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was fixed on that desire. And he even confronted in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, he confronted the people who did not have that attitude. John six twenty six. When the 5,000 came to see him on the other side of the sea of Galilee, he confronts them. He says in John 6, 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father 
Even God has set his seal. They were working for the food which perish, perishes, but not for the food which endures to eternal life. What's the food that endures to eternal life? The words of eternal life will remain forever and ever. This should be our attitude toward those who speak the word of God, because the word of God, spoken, heard, read, memorized, is this uh, word that's special and treasure a treasure to us. Now let's move on to the next phrase of our verse. Hebrews 13, 7, he says, not only who spoke the word of God to you, but he says, considering the result of their conduct. Considering the result of their conduct. Now, the result of their conduct or the end of their conduct is death. It is death. He mentioned death as one of the results in Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. He says, they were put to death with the sword. They were put to death with the sword. In Hebrews 12, 4, he's telling them, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. That has not yet happened to you. So don't think that you are worse off than other people. Don't think that. You have to continue resisting to the point of shedding your blood in your striving against sin. We have examples of others in the Bible who had to give up their life and throughout their life they persisted in rejecting sin even if it cost them their life. We have the example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in life and in death, he wanted to please Christ. Philippians 1. Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. If he lives, it's for Christ. If he dies, it's also for, for Christ. He says, it's gain, and it's better to be in the presence of the sinless Christ and my own self sinless. That's much better. But while I am here, I am going to live for Christ, live for the sake of the church, fruitful labor for me, among you, the Philippians and other churches. This is what I will live for. I will live for this reason. Remember, we read 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 and Paul, he underwent so many different hardships throughout his life. Even the threat of death. And we do know outside of the Bible that in 2 Timothy, when he is in prison, that he eventually died in prison by the hand of Nero. Nero ordered for his execution, the emperor of Rome. This is the Apostle Paul's life. He lived a godly life and believed this word of God so faithfully, so sincerely, so genuinely that he was willing to give up his life not in the pursuit of killing somebody else, murdering somebody else, exploiting somebody else, but in the pursuit of the true gospel of eternal life. Peter, Peter was the same. Jesus told him in John 21 that he was going to die in a way that he would not like. He would die in a way that he would not like. And then in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 and following, he actually makes reference to that very thing. Second Peter 1.12 Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to, re to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He's alluding to what Jesus told him in John 21, that he was going to be forced to go to a place he does not want to go. He's going to die for the sake of the gospel. 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things 
to mind. He died. He lived until the very end, and he died for the gospel of Christ. And now, is this only for the apostles to live this way? Or is it also for us? 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 will make the connection to us. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's telling Timothy, so we bridge the gap between the apostles, Paul and Peter, to Timothy. And Timothy was not one of the apostles. He was a pastor. And he says in verse 5, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship. Keep on being faithful in the ministry, endure hardship. I am about to die. I am going to be poured out like a drink offering. My blood is going to be spilled. My body will be given up. But I have fought the good fight until the very end, he says. I have fought the good fight of faith until the very end. And there is a reward awaiting me, the crown of righteousness, verse 8. But it's not just for Paul. And it's not just for Timothy. Pastors, verse 8 says, to all who have loved his appearing. So it is for all of us to imitate, to emulate. We are to be just like the apostles, just like the prophets, just like Timothy and other pastors, and even pastors today and throughout history. We are to be faithful until the very end, just like them. And the best example of all of this was our Lord Jesus himself, who endured until the very end. This is the kind of leader we have to consider the result of their conduct. Now, if you just think about this aspect, is this the way the world thinks? Doesn't the world and fleshly churches, don't they think, well, if the pastor is wealthy, if the, pa- if the pastor is likable, if the pastor is handsome, if the pastor is eloquent, if the pastor knows how to draw a crowd and keep a crowd, if the pastor will let me have my way, my sinful way, then I will go to that church. Right? Isn't that the way the world thinks? But that's not the way we're supposed to think. We're supposed to look at the godly conduct that ends in death even of the godly pastor. That's what we're supposed to consider. That kind of conduct, not the way the typical people give respect to people. And also, have you thought, look around you, perhaps it has come to your mind as well. Why is it that the godly pastor is not honored and respected as much as the wealthy man, as well as the scientist, as well as the engineer, as well as the medical doctor? Why is it that the surgeons get all the respect in the world? Why is it that the astronauts get all the respect? Why is it that the sports celebrities, those who have tens of millions of dollars, why is it that the actors of the world, they get all the respect? Why is it that the handsome and beautiful get all the respect? Why is it? Is that not devilish? Is that not fatal? Is that not going to lead to death if we give them respect that they don't deserve? They don't deserve the kind of respect that the one who handles the Word of God, who speaks the Word of God, and considering the result of their conduct, a faithful life that may even end in execution for the gospel of Christ. That's the kind of pastor that should be honored. And honored to what extent? Finally, we come to the second command in this verse. He says, remember them, but now he says, imitate their faith. 
imitate their faith. Now, we have to keep in mind, though he is speaking of the pastor of the local church, imitate their faith, we have to also keep in mind, which our apostle does believe in also, since he's been telling us for 12 chapters about Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of the one we should imitate. For example, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's first see who the supreme example is that we should imitate. It is God in Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The supreme example, God in Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ, to the point of death, gave himself, loved us. So imitate God in Christ as his beloved children. Imitate him. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul says to imitate him just as he imitates Christ, which means that if Paul doesn't imitate Christ, then don't follow Paul in that way. However Paul imitates Christ, imitate Paul. Paul has, is set in Scripture as an example to imitate. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 4.16 I exhort you therefore, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. 3.17 Philippians 3.17 Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. He says, follow his own example and follow the example of others who follow that example, because there's many people who don't follow that example, who are in it for themselves whose God is their appetite. Their own appetite is the reason they are in ministry and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. We could go on and on. The prophets and the other apostles, the other disciples, the saints, uh, men and women of the Old Testament, many examples of those who followed, followed God in their whole life. Hebrews chapter 11 sets forth the many examples that we could study, and we have studied in the past. So, follow them. Now, if we are to follow God in Christ, if we are to follow Paul and the other apostles, the prophets, and the saints of the Bible, if we are to follow our local pastors to the extent that they are following Christ, if we are to follow them, does that not imply avoidance of the false ones? Does that not imply that we have to avoid and get rid of and stay away from the false teachers and false pastors? Proverbs 13, 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Don't be a companion of a fool and therefore suffer harm. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Therefore, we should follow the word of God and avoid the sinners and the scoffers and the wicked people of the world. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. And it's easy to be deceived. That's why the Bible constantly tells us, do not be deceived. 2 Corinthians chapter 
6, verse 14. Do not, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Shall we then remember our leaders? Remember those who spoke the word of God, the precious word of God, the words of life, the word of the cross, the words of Christ, and consider the godly life they, they led and imitate their faith. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.